Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. 
You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com All right, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bidder. For a large chunk of these older episodes, I've had to cut the original intros as part of a migration process. So all that means is we're going to get straight into the interview here with the name that you clicked on. No warm-ups, no preamble, just a straight one, two and in. You ready? One, two... Welcome to 101 Part-Time Jobs. I'm Megan Tinsley and this is the episode with Honey Joy. Giles is my overlord and now here we go. All right, so it's 101 Part-Time Jobs. Usually I speak to other people who I don't know so well. And and now we're, uh, well, we're just with three other people and we all know each other very well. We grew up together. In fact, I'm quite hungover this morning. And do you know that the exact feeling I have right now is when we used to have a band practice uh, for our teenage ska band on a Friday night and we used to wake up at eight o'clock a few towns across and my mum used to come pick me up at eight so I could start my supermarket shift to Waitrose. <laughs> <laughs> but around that time, Matt, you had a job. Um, I, I always thought I always thought it was fascinating. I, th- I think like when you when you're a kid and you're trying to be a bit like, I don't know, you don't want to ask too many questions. Uh, but I always thought it was so funny how you worked at a... Um, what is it? What is it when you when you go to a restaurant and um, secret thing? What's it called? Uh, mystery customer. So That's yeah, I worked, I worked in an office that did like mystery cust sent mystery customers to restaurants and things, and I would basically get the the paperwork back from these visits and then data entry them into a big database online. Oh, I didn't know you did that. I yeah, used to do just... actual mystery shopping. As well. Did you? <laughs> Maybe you coincided once. Maybe I've re- maybe I uh, read one of your reports. <laughs> Jay, did you used to use a disguise when you did mystery shopping? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they didn't know who I was in the first place, so it would be a well, that's what you a, think. A, a moot disguise. I used to go like and buy um, uh, beer from Tesco when I was under eighteen. Oh no, I was what? eighteen. That's a sting but, um, operation, not a fucking. Yeah, it, was a, shop. it was it was a challenge twenty five thing or whatever. So I had to like make sure that they ID'd me. If they didn't ID me, they'd get like marked down. Who was that? Who was like the 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 body? Who was like your boss? It was a it was a company. You just sign up to do what which, whichever ones you want, and you get like four quid for going to do it, plus the stuff you buy. And so presumably, like, they're employed by. I, yeah, they're they're like hired by Tesco. No, no, it's not nothing like that. These are all independent companies. Yeah, yeah. like the company would pay to have these people come in. And basically rank their staff. Yeah. Right. So they're kind of like, right, you know, they're kind of working against their own negligence, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But, nice. I mean, it was a solid job from what I remember, Matt. I just remember you used to disappear into an office in Berkhamsted <laughs> for a few hours and you always had a bit of money. It was great. You didn't oh, yeah, have to work in good. a supermarket like everyone else. No, I used to just sit there listening to my music and then clock in fuck off when i was done <laughs> from what i remember you worked there from from quite a young age yeah i think i was about 16 17 something oh. like that fastest fastest typer in berkhamsted mate <laughs> what did you get for that uh i got four pounds and some beer <laughs> <laughs> 
like, I didn't know you had that job, Jay. It wasn't so much a job as it was like something I could do once or twice a week uh, mm. just for like a bit of money because I think it was when I was like 17, 18. Didn't really, I was at college. Um, so didn't really have a job. Was had, well, I had EMA, I think. EMA was the thing that was at the time, you know, when you get 30 yeah. a week just for going to college, which was amazing at the time. Um, but yeah, I do it like a couple times a week and then have bit, have free beer and <laughs> about four quid. How would you like rely off getting jobs? Would you just like hear them out, hear about them at college from mates? Like what? Where do what, you? Where do they? Find you mean them? like mystery shopper jobs or? Yeah, just like those little like gigs. I suppose you were getting. I think I probably found them online or something, um, or maybe through a friend. It was a long time ago. I can't remember. It was, they were never particularly interesting. Oh, there was one where it was a, a higher paying one because it wasn't for Tesco's. I had to go to um, a uh, what was it? It was a place that sold like beds. Dreams. Maybe, maybe it was like like DFS or something. I don't know if they sell beds. Um, and I had to pretend that I was going to buy a bed, and I was like, <laughs> like ratty, like seventeen year old skater, <laughs> going like, yes, I'd like, I'd like to inquire about this six hundred pound bed. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I fucked it up because I couldn't remember the name of the guy that was serving me, <laughs> so I didn't get paid for it. <laughs> oh, no. That's quite a duty on your part to be like a seventeen-year-old and like be an actor. Yeah, know? yeah, it was kind of fun. It was part of. I think that was part of what what drew me to it. It was kind of you know, with espionage. You know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, uh. es- espionage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was- Joe, I can't actually. I can't actually remember you having a job when we were teenagers. I worked at the big posh hotel in Watford. Oh, the Grove. I worked at the Grove, yeah. Yeah. White gloves, fucking waistcoat. White gloves? <laughs> yeah, whole shebang, man. It was it was super posh, and I worked in the meetings team. So the meetings and events, like, uh, catering. So it was all basically conferences. And it was really fun, to be honest. It was basically... You need work- to give some context of, of about how fancy this hotel is. Who who's Who's been there? So I served... A variety of minor and some major celebrities. The best one was the England team. I got to serve a buffet too. That was quite fun. But mostly it was just mostly it was conferences and huge weddings, which was quite good. And they just employed. Did he stay there? Maybe not in my not in my era. They did the big. They had the big like um, the open golf tournament there, and that was a big deal. But again, not my era. But um, did you have to, you know, the, the the few the you know small amount of times I've been to like, you know, somewhere posh like that, I always feel slightly sorry for people working there or in any hotel, I suppose actually, because it's kind of your job to just like shut up and do your thing, hundred percent, pretend like you're not there. Yeah, 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 and you have to be very overtly kind of subservient, taking like showing people around, and being really, really overly polite, which is fine. But the workforce it was kind of split fifty fifty with half of us being idiot 16, 17-year-old sick formers from the local area, fine. And then the other half being people who worked there full-time who fucking hated it more than anything in the world. So we would rock up after school and do like a 6pm till 11pm shift and just basically piss around, kind of serve people and then go home. And then the people that had been there all day and just who worked there properly just were soul-destroyed. So it was a weird kind of dynamic on the workforce. <laughs> yeah. 
I find quite often in those jobs, you get people like you at 17, who's just there on the weekends or a couple of nights in midweek. And then you get the people who are like old, old, <laughs> you know, yeah. who are just lifers there. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult. But, you know, made some good friends with those people and they were quite interesting. But uh, yeah, the majority was just, were just idiots from the local schools. And Megan, we all know you as working as a as a nurse in the NHS. I mean, when when we, when we met, however many years ago, you were you were doing that. You were studying to do that. Yeah. So I worked in a pub when I was studying to do nursing, which was pretty bland. It was like not it was just your average pub. Um, but before, I did a bit of like I was a chambermaid when I was fourteen. So I'd like make beds. That's young. I know. I got two pounds sixty an hour. What's a chambermaid, isn't that like yeah. a? Is that like a medieval barwoman? <laughs> in some, I'm just imagining some get-up that I had to wear. No, yeah, that's what it's... that's what came into my mind. Yeah, like lederhosen. I'm like washerwoman outfit in Southampton. <laughs> well, no, it was in the New Forest, darling, <laughs> and <laughs> it was this hotel that was a. I don't know, it's like a golf course, <clears throat> so it was quite fancy. And uh, no, it was a chambermaid, which just meant that I cleaned the rooms, made the beds, cleaned the bathrooms, that kind of thing. Did you ever find anything gross in there? No. Like, I remember finding a dildo in the bin, and I was like, why is it in the bin? <laughs> <laughs> why was it in the bin? It seemed I mean, a bit of a waste. You can use this again. <laughs> Maybe it broke. I just, well, I'm assuming so now, but I was like, Whoa. um yeah no it was it was just it was quite a good job really because you'd like smash through all the rooms and then you'd sit on someone's bed and just eat the biscuits and watch friends in the morning until it's time to go yeah I had a similar experience at the hotel if it was quiet and you didn't have anyone to serve you just had to polish silverware but you just used to go and sit in the rooms and watch MTV on the big TVs and just sit there for like three hours polishing yeah. silverware it was great working at the pub it's like if there's always something to do and that is cleaning glasses even if you yeah. think you've done everything you have to then clean some glasses yeah yeah of course yeah but sometimes those shit jobs are the good ones because you get to just chat and not think about anything did you ever get ocd from like you know doing the same thing over and over in yeah. what way you know I like do. i don't know cle- cleaning glasses you know you count the amount of sides you do or whatever i don't know i got I really this particular is more into your life Giles. <laughs> well yeah but i can't be the only one I got really particular about like the folds in the bed, like when I was making the bed. If that makes this sense. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and I've continued that on into nursing. And home life. Because. <laughs> <laughs> What's your concept? Do you count the 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 folds? No. So I don't think it's OCD because there's no like counting or obsession about like how many times I do something but it's the way in which it's done so the folds doing the folds the right way yeah. so I think it's just a particularness yeah, and also toilet roll the whole thing about does does the toilet roll hang over the top or come underneath I'm very and that comes from being a chambermaid over the top though right huh over the top that's like the yes way. <laughs> yeah yeah always no one wants it underneath yeah. So I've got this theory, it's not too far out of a theory, but my stepdad, who you know, Sean, is like a lovely, lovely man, right? But if you try and do the washing up in front of him, he just loses his shit because he needs to do really? it his way. Yeah, because he just needs to do it his way. And, and it makes me think, like, I think we all have this thing as we get a bit older, we have the ways that we do things. 
Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I, yeah. I think that's just like human nature. It's habitual. And it's the right way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Matt chop an onion and I was like, oh, God. Have you since converted to another technique that Megan's introduced or do you still battle? No, I've your... turned to him. Well, no. Oh, Sadly, the girl who ate when I met was only eating baked bean toasties did not have <laughs> any impact on my onion cutting. <laughs> at the hospital, obviously, the stress levels or the you know potential you know hard day at work is mm. is going to be a lot more regular or more up and down than than working mm. at, a, at a hotel how how do you deal with that um, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i'm still figuring it out 10 years in i think <laughs> yeah because there there must be some days where you go in and you're like holy shit how am i going to get through today yeah but that's where your colleagues come in isn't it one of my first memories of kind of you know <laughs> stressful days i was in elderly care and um you're trying to get everyone sort of freshened up and washed before lunchtime or whatever. And uh, I'm helping this one guy out and um, it's a bit difficult. He's a bit sort of combative and just out of nowhere grabs me and then just hits me over the head with his pooey nappy. And initially, initially it was like, fuck sake. And I just ran to the loo. But once I realized that everything was okay, it was just like, oh my God, this is my life now. What the fuck? So but, what what can you do in those situations? Because I suppose you're like you're the authoritative figure there. In a way, but you're you know, you are a caring profession. So there's nothing like you don't tell people off or anything. It, it, you know, like he wasn't completely able to make his own decisions. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to just recompose yourself, laugh about it and carry on. And that was it. And that was, yeah, one of my first memories of working and being like okay this is this is a wild ride there's no hr that you can go to yeah people really i with all my nursing stories and you all know this you sometimes you forget your audience you can tell people and people will be like yeah that's really funny or they just look at you so horrified and then or you just bum out everyone and suddenly the room turns really sad (laughs) <laughs> have have you developed any kind of ways any kind of i don't know like mottos that you tell yourself or maybe something that you read before you go in to just kind of help prepare yourself i suppose it really is just kind of get on with it with your colleagues and i don't know there's just the one superstition that i honestly think is nationwide that nurses or healthcare professionals will never use the word quiet because there quiet. is money yeah quiet if you say, oh, today's quiet, or, oh, it seems a bit quiet, you, honestly, there is something happening as soon as you say that word, it goes mental. So although there's no, like, you know, motto that keeps us, like, cheerleading or whatever, there's things that you all know as, like, a team not to say (laughs) because it all goes to shit. Have you experienced that in real time? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I don't believe that sort of shit most of the time. Like, I didn't believe... Um, when I first started, people were like, oh yeah, full moon, everyone goes a bit nuts. And I didn't believe it. And then, you know, do enough full moon, uh, full moon night shifts and it all goes to shit. And yeah, it's, yeah. It is interesting. I think like when, when, so it's, it's been really hot this week and mm. in the last two days, especially it's been really kind of boiling hot. And I have noticed on my road, people have been a bit crazier. Yeah. 
It's definitely a thing, isn't it? Definitely. Yesterday on the way while I was walking back home, uh, there was like a traffic light and some driver didn't go through when she could have done, I don't know. The person behind him was just behind them was just like beeping relentlessly, ended up mounting the pavement, going alongside her, called her a bitch and then sped through a red light, <sighs> causing like near accidents. It was fucking gnarly. But I, I remember you, you said to me before, Meg, that it's kind of inverse in hospital admissions. I think maybe you were probably talking about cardiac stuff specifically, but people don't go to mm. hospital when it's sunny because they want to go to stay out in the sun and like have a good yeah. time. And then when it gets bad yeah, again, yeah. when all these people come in that should have been there too. Yeah. So that was in A&E when I was working in A&E. Sort of weekends and really sunny days would be really quiet and then, like, as soon as, like, Sunday night, Monday morning, suddenly people didn't feel too well when they're on their way to work. <laughs> it just <laughs> just kind of happened like that. And similarly, over Christmas for cardiac stuff, it will be really quiet because people will think, oh, I've got indigestion, I've got indigestion. And then a few days of indigestion, they'll be, turn up to hospital and be like, oh, no, no, yeah, there's something wrong. You shouldn't stay at home eating those. <laughs> you must have had it in the past where – someone's come in and you're like wow this is this is like a big problem <laughs> and does it you know and does it scare you when something like that happens like do you ever feel like you're I don't know in over your head yeah definitely definitely I like whenever you're put in a situation that's new it's a bit over your head and especially if you're like in charge of the unit or something like that if you're the most senior person on that can be quite scary um and that's when I'm sort of my quietest but probably best at my job because you just get on with it and you just go into a zone really when everything's hitting the fan um especially if you're in charge and you realize that you've got years of experience and things just pop up in your mind of how to deal with things that you would never knew you would think of um and you just kind of get through it and I think that's why teamwork's so important in nursing um but yeah you just get through with it and and just kind of keep going and and it's yeah it depends on the team that you're with and who you're working with and knowing people's strengths and stuff and but yeah I think I was talking about as well like um seeing those situations how it's how it can be kind of difficult but ultimately it's always nice to be reminded that um you don't know everything and um life's pretty pretty fragile and and just appreciate everyone but I, I was saying as well um Matt, poor Matt, has to listen to my stories when I come home and it just <laughs> just bums him out sometimes. Sometimes it does, but, you know, sometimes it's also quite interesting. Yeah. It must be really hard for you, Matt. It's so hard, <laughs> so hard, Jay. <laughs> there I am, slaving over dinner, and she comes in and be like, oh, I saved lives today. What have you done? I mashed some beans. <laughs> some good mashing. Important work, Matt, important work. They're not going to mash themselves. Have those skills kind of manifested in other parts of your life? Yeah, for sure. I can definitely deal with stress a bit better. Um, and yeah, I think just getting like knowing when to stress about things in nursing. If you if you thought about everything that could happen, you'd be <laughs> in a state of terror all the time. But you don't. You have to prioritize like what's what's important now. And I think that comes like 
that's really good in your personal life. Like if you think about money and think about, you know, living situations and what you need outside of work, like in your life to, to be happy or to make things run, then yeah, it helps with that. Nothing stresses you out. You just think, well, why worry about something in three months time? We'll just do what we can now. And then that's it. Prioritize. I think, I think that's the best, best skill out of nothing. I feel like everyone in this room has has that story. I think everyone, you know, in their sort of twenties to thirties, has that thought. Yeah, like yeah, of a, one way of learning how to not be terrified of being an adult. Like paying rent is scary, even when you have a job. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that brings me to makes me think of of Joe. You've been you've had the same job for the last what was it probably ten years now? Nine years. Yeah, give or give or take. Um, different jobs, but. <clears throat> within the same place yeah you deal with audio in films and tv shows yeah exactly so i went in as a runner uh fresh out of university made tea and coffee for a few years and now i am a sound editor or sound designer or whatever you would like to call it when you're delivering tea and coffee like yeah we we everyone here has done you know done the internship thing mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it always bugged me i'm like how how excited can I be when I give someone a cup of tea? Like when I give someone a cup of tea, can I drop in a line whether I can help them? You know, how did you deal with that? Well, it's, it's different. So I work in quite a small facility. There's about 40 of us. Um, and it depends on who you're talking to, really, I would say. So you go in and you obviously want to make friends with all the people that work there. So I remember starting and you can be quite chipper with them. Like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, help them out, offer whatever. But the golden rule is just if anyone's famous or anyone, if there's actors in, directors in or whatever, just act like you don't know who they are, is what I found. When was the first time that happened to you, for you? Well, it's just, so I ran a bunch of different studios before I got a job at the place I now work. And you just kind of run into these, like an assortment of minor celebrities so I bumped into, um, I bought Ross Kemper Flake, for instance, and, <laughs> and I gave Rupert Grint a hamper full of Thomas the Tanker, oh no, Postman Pat merchandise, um, and like shit what? like that. And it's just, you have to like, the you know, it's impressed upon you as a, well, however old I was, 21, like, wet behind the ears, 21 year old, straight out of university, just like. Just let these people do their job and don't be like, oh, hi, I've seen you from the TV. Yeah. <laughs> Did you always have something, you know, you could do? I mean, we were talking earlier about kind of those jobs where you just... Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. It's like a service job at the beginning. It's basically shut up and make coffees and hang around long enough until someone gives you a chance to do something else. Um, so in the same way, there's always something to do, isn't there? Fill in the dishwasher or float. You know, ideally when it is quiet, that's that's kind of how you progress, right? Because you say to someone, oh, you know, have you got something that I can work on, I can train on, I can practice on, blah, 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 and you try and uh, get in with the with the right people who will help you out. But, yeah, it is very much a service job at the beginning. What was your first opportunity to do something? Short films, really. Um, everyone makes, like, there's so many that get made online and a lot of people who are aspiring directors and stuff, they make them off their own back. They haven't got any money to do it. But if you've got, you know the keys into a decent studio and a few people who are willing to do it for free then you can you can offer quite a lot without having that much knowledge um 
So in that situation, you were the person with the keys to the studio. Yeah. So I knew, you know, there's a few people like assistants and trainees and whatever, and you just go out and wrangle yourself a short film from a director who's making it off his own back because they want to showcase what they can do. You want to train up and showcase what you can do. And then after enough time doing those kind of small things, people were, in my case anyway, people realise that you're putting in the effort and then kind of throw you you some bits and pieces on actual shows. And then six years later, you're in the same office, but doing a better job. (laughs) So you're doing these little jobs for these aspiring directors on short films for the internet. Yeah. Did you, when, when you'd have the finished film, would you take that to your boss or would you kind of keep your head down and hope that they take notice? Not really. Yeah, yeah. It was more kind of like, I don't know if it's because, if it's kind of because of me not wanting to like, I don't know, be that overconfident, but it was more of a just do it in the background, get it done. And people kind of are aware. It gets kind of noticed if you're, it's that, it's that classic thing in a creative industry where you have to work hard and work for free and then maybe you'll get a chance. It's bullshit, and you don't get paid properly, and if you don't have the means to be able to like pull loads of overtime hours and live in London whilst getting paid nothing, then it's really difficult. Um, it's a classic story of you know trying to progress in a creative industry. So you just kind of cra- I just kind of cracked on with it. Um, and then, you know, smaller projects came through work, and you start getting, like, picking up those, and then... Once you're in, once once you've got your foot in, that's kind of it. Then becomes slightly easier because your CV starts getting better and it it kind of um, snowballs naturally. But it's that first kind of getting from making coffee to getting getting into a studio is probably the more difficult part. I think it's interesting for us because, like you know, we hear your stories. Like you know, you worked on Chernobyl and you've got an Emmy for that. You got flown out to Hollywood, to Los Angeles, to, to do that. You went to the Emmys. You have an Emmy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is insane. And like, you know, those those are the things that, you know, we, we talk about that, you know, and we, we hear about those exciting sides of it. But we but I guess what we don't hear about is the hours that you put in. Yeah, it's, it's that's the thing. There are, the, you get those like, I've, so I'm relatively young in terms of people that do my job. Um, and I've had conversations with some older people who do my role and they've said, just enjoy this because you'll get one of these projects maybe once every five years, maybe once every 10 years that comes along and you work on it and it's like, this is legit. This is really good. This is going to be really big. And uh, it's a good opportunity to showcase the best of what you can do. And then the other like nine years out of 10 are just, you know, you're working away on on whatever it might be. Um so it's good to get those kind of opportunities and grab them when you can. Um, then the, the less glamorous side of it is sitting in a windowless basement in Soho for anywhere between 12 and 16 hours a day, churning out weird sounds, most of which you get told are rubbish by a director or a producer, and then a few of which stick around. <laughs> I always thought it's mad. I don't know if this says more about me, but I always think it's mad how... A, well, A, you go in on the weekend sometimes, but on, you know, Monday through Friday, you're in there at what, seven or eight, and then you're out at seven or eight in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is kind of the, it's, it's getting less so now as I've, as I'm getting more experienced, more respected and kind of, um, and more senior in the teams that I'm on, 
that becomes those kind of mad hours become less. But when your back's against the wall, and you know, it's it's not just me either. It's like everybody, everybody in these kind of creative projects does it, um, including the the kind of directors and producers. They, if they've got deadlines and they need to hit it, and things need to get turned around, then then it's just yeah, all hands all hands on deck really. And speaking about Chernobyl, I think it's the best piece of TV that I've watched in the last few years. When it came through to your desk, when you when you know when your boss was like, "Okay, today this week we start working on this TV show. It's called Chernobyl. Um, it's about what happened there." When you when you first laid your eyes on it and started working on it, did you know how good it was? Did you know how good it was going to be? Yeah, you get obviously. So when I get it, the first time I'll see it will be we'll get a cut and copy which will probably be a few weeks away from being final, like the edit being finalised. Um, it'll obviously have no sound in it. A lot of effects will be missing. Uh, the cut won't quite be right, so it might be a bit clunky in places. But the bones of it... So, sorry, you'll get it, you'll, you'll get it with no sound? We'll get it with sound, but without, without anything kind of edited or mixed. So we'll get kind of the, the raw um, microphone sounds of all the dialogue and then we'll get cut and copy uh, like cut and copy effects so they'll put in temporary effects for things that need to be there for the show to make sense um, so when you first got it when you first saw like the raw copy you know the massive explosion yeah. scene in the beginning is yeah. there just no explosion in the film in the there's no explosion so we got when we got the first copy there, there was a visual explosion because that had been done the vfx team had worked on that so there was like a rough, rough version of how you see it, like explode from a distance. And then there was like a temporary kind of explosion sound on there. And then they just say to us, they give us a brief for what they want it to sound like. And then off you go. And you kind of, it's just then becomes a long process of doing things, feeding it back, getting feedback on that, which weirdly was, was more like how we've been working now in lockdown because the production team were all in the US. Um, we're in LA and New York. So the director and the execs so we would do we were sending off things on quick times and on and on like online reviews which we don't tend to do often people are in london so they come into the studio you hit play and then you get like immediate feedback and that's kind of so that process on that of sending things off for reviews essentially how we've been working now as well when chernobyl arrived you know you knew it was going to be good have, have there been any times where you've, you've started working on something and you haven't thought much of it but then, you know, it goes out and, and, you know, audiences love it. Yes, definitely. Um, but you, it's quite, like you spend so much time watching so, such a variety of television and films that when things come in, even if I don't like it, you can see who will like it and what they're pitching at. So that, so Chernobyl came in and it's obviously, it's got quite a broad um, appeal to a lot of different people but other shows that will come in or other films or whatever I will be like I don't want to watch this this is shit but I know that if I showed this to my mum she would say this is amazing this is exactly what I want to watch whereas when you know if something something else like Peaky Blinders for instance I think that's great we've done a lot of work on that I watch it and I'm like this is fantastic my mum watches it and goes oh my god they swear so much and there's so much violence I hate it so you, you kind of learn, you learn to see, even if you don't like something, you learn to see the appeal, like what, what it's punching at and who it's punching at and what the appeal will be. And then obviously some things yeah. are just objectively bad, but hey, everyone's trying their best. How many times have you done some work and your boss or, you know, whoever the people are, you know, approving it for you, mm -hmm. 
how how much how many times has it been where you think that you've done a quite a good job and they're like nah joe no so so often it's one of the big probably one of the biggest lessons um that i had to learn in in the first like you know five years or whatever of your career is just to not be precious about work that you've done you'll spend days putting a sequence together whatever it might be um and then you'll sit down in the studio and hit play and this thing that you thing that you've created that you've poured everything into uh will just be torn apart in front of you and they'll say we don't actually like this and you go back and do it again and it's shit but um and at first the first few projects you get really attached to it and so you kind of do this thing where you change it because they want it changed but you don't really change it you keep the fundamentals of it because you think it's a good idea and yeah. like the the hardest lesson to learn is actually it's much better to just screw it up on the ball, delete the file, and start from scratch doing what they want because you can be precious about it, but it's just going to be painful later when they say uh, you should have changed it more. But what happens if you don't really understand what they mean? Well, that's the difficult thing about sound is it's it's, it's quite hard to explain a lot of the time exactly what people want so you you have to interpret things and you learn you learn the kind of the language that people use to describe the things that they want which often will have nothing to do with sound they'll you know they'll be describing more like the emotions of a scene or something like that and you have to learn to interpret it and I think that's just that's just a big part of the job being able to interpret um yeah people's intentions and Matt, you've done something really similar. Like your your most recent job was working for Formula One on the documentary they did on Netflix. Yeah. So yeah, I had a similar sort of progression as Bill. Um, started off making tea for a few years, and then gradually kind of like climbed the ladder slightly in like a, a post house. Um, so I went from like making teas and coffees for a few years to then basically dealing with like all the the files and stuff that need to get sent to like clients and to various like editors and sound designers etc and then from there i became a coordinator which is essentially like a a middle manager between like a post production supervisor and the post house sort of thing uh, yeah. so i basically like oversee kind of like the whole project be it like editing video sound grading everything and just kind of making sure everything gets delivered on time basically i think it's funny because it's so it's so random that journey isn't it you know maybe it can take one chance interaction with somebody in the elevator for you to get your next job oh yeah that's literally it yeah i just became really friendly with um like my my old my boss who, who became my boss sorry i got really friendly with him and we worked together for maybe a year um was that as runners uh no i started i did meet him when i was a runner and then he he was like slightly more senior to me um we kind of like always got on and then he left where we were working and became a post supervisor and then yeah a few years later he was just offered me a job because he but you think that's so funny that literally your livelihood is based on these kinds of little meetings, these little chances. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's just literally right person, right time sort of thing. And, you know, sh- you know, demonstrating something at, you know, some weird point in time that he remembered that I'm quite an organised person and then just needed someone like me to work for him. So, yeah. 
And what yeah. difficulties have you have you run into? I mean, we we were just sort of like you know, Joe was just saying about how how he'll do a mix and then he'll think it's great, and, but you know, for the people you know the people who it matters for, they don't think it's great. Does that happen to you? I think people find it hard to describe what they really want. They don't really know until they see it. So they'll throw out all these ideas. And I think a lot of the issues sometimes is that it's just like a communication breakdown, really. Yeah. Like so many times on like the last show that I worked on, it would be a director would come in, ask for something done a certain way. The editor would go away, do it. And then the next week, the director would come in and be like, why the fuck do you do it like that? And they'd be like, I've done it exactly what you asked for. There's this weird level of bureaucracy in that, isn't it? Because everyone's trying to impress each other. Yeah. But yeah. everyone also can have very strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite fu- like, I think when you kind of get editors and like sound designers like Bill, I think they're, they're quite happy to just kind of do whatever, you know, gets the job done essentially. But kind of like the higher up you go, it's almost, they're a bit more, they can retain, like they can be precious about certain things because essentially they have the power to, be precious you know so like we would like lock episodes send them off to netflix and stuff and then like a week later someone would come back and be like oh i want to i want to change this like i don't know five second sequence and it's like well ultimately you have to be like oh that's fine but deep down you're like that's me not going home at like six o'clock tonight. That's me staying all night. So you can change some five second sequence that no one's really going to notice. Yeah. And it's, it's massive. Like it's, it's a difficult line to draw between uh, when you see yourself as kind of like the big, um, like romantic create romantic idea of like a, a creative having these kind of, um, these ideas that are going to be, that are going to end up on TV or, or in a film or whatever. And then, contrasting that with what the reality is which is some people have paid a lot of money for you to make it sound like they want it to sound like in my um so what they say goes and if they don't like something that you've done then you just have to shut up and do it um which is kind of um you know contrast to the the whole idea of why people do jobs like like mine which is because they want to be creative and interesting but ultimately you know someone's paying the bill so they get the last, they get the final say. And Jay, like you, you work. I guess you, most of the jobs I've known you to have are kind of customer facing. Have have you had has that kind of had to make you think in a different way? I mean, it definitely gives you, like, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, people skills, which I think is more is shorthand for, uh, yeah, patience and realizing that the majority of the public are not very nice. <laughs> Uh, especially if um, you know you, you you're calling them up to try and sell them something, which is you know a lot of, a lot of the jobs I've had have been like telesales, soul destroying shit. And um, yeah, I think in yeah in the public places, especially with telephone. Do you think? Do you think, Jay? So you've you've like so you've done those kind of jobs so that you could essentially spend your entire twenties going on tour, where surely you see you see like the opposite of the worst side of people because when you're on top everyone's quite nice really is that true like people let you stay in the house and they feed you and they're kind of generally being cool yeah yeah i guess throughout most of my 20s i saw the two extremes of the human condition in terms of (laughs) like horrible uh 
you know, really horrible people being very mean and then like the nicest people on the planet <laughs> who will make you breakfast and, uh, you know, put on your band. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a weird um, dichotomy, I guess you'd call it. Very hot and cold. Was that quite, I mean, um, it's so up and down. Did you, I mean, how did you sort of deal with that? Um, you learn to kind of shut down for the for the day job. Um, which isn't healthy I've come to realize um, you kind of tr- you have to try and like numb yourself and just become a robot to get on with those kinds of jobs this job in specific I'm talking about is a, a PPI call center I used to work in which I basically ring you up and say oh we've got we've got some uh, a PPI rebate or whatever for you and they're like oh yeah do you and I'm like in reality no I don't I'm just, this is just, I'm just reading off a bit of paper <laughs> And it was it was crooked. You're a pretty ethical human being, I would say. And this isn't a criticism, but you know, having a job like that where you feel, you know, your words crooked. It's it's funny, like wh- with that particular job when I started it, I was like, because the way that they sell the job to you, because they they'll hire anybody and just tell them it's you know you can earn commission or whatever. I was like, cool, I can earn some extra money, which means I won't be skinned mm. halfway through tour, and um then you get a couple of months into the job and realize that this is, uh, you know, you'd, with PPI, you were doing something that people could do themselves for free, but we were charging 40% on what we get them, which is like fucked thinking about it. I mean, I knew at the time it was kind of fucked, but it was a job yeah. I needed it. So I guess that's part of the territory, especially in living in Brighton where there's no real industry here apart from tourism um those are the kind of jobs that you get you get call centers and you get cafes that's pretty much it for mm. you know uh day jobs and um yeah it was just i think it was the sh- the shutting down part i got quite good at so i just didn't think about it when i went to work you and i have have had quite deep conversations over the years where it's been like fucking hell is this life <laughs> working these shit jobs to go on tour, <laughs> but then am I really enjoying my life? Am I doing the right thing? But I, I feel like yeah. you've remained generally positive about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's always having something to look forward to, isn't it? And when you've got a tour a couple of months down the line, you're like, oh, it's going to be really good. Can't wait to see this band every night. It's going to be great. Um, having that to look forward to uh, keeps you going through the shit. Mm. But um, when there's nothing to look forward to, you kind of realise that, oh, God, I need to sort my shit out. (laughs) I mean, Megan mentioned earlier, like, you know, working in the hospitals made her realise the life is so fragile. And I I think, you know, that's the similar thing, isn't it? Knowing that, like, literally the the thing that keeps you going, your reason to live, is also something that can be taken away from you quite quickly. Yeah, totally. I think it's a bit more more of a... uh mortality thing with with uh meg's job <laughs> like literal mortality but uh yeah the thing there's definitely something in uh the sort of you know remedial uh call center type jobs that kind of kick you into gear about what you want to be doing and it, it with, with touring it's not so much you know as you know life or death but i've also seen people really lose their minds from touring too much and in a sense, you know, 
that is that is changing you as a person you know whether it be depression or you know anxiety or putting you into a bad place when you're not on tour you know that's something that we just see all the time in our friends and you know it's hard to talk about and people talk about mental health and people talk about you know mental health in touring musicians you see those words all the time but you don't necessarily hear the the true stories of that I suppose is what I'm getting on to I mean yeah I I've never really treated touring as like a job I'll I'll you know sit in the back of the van and then get out and set up my drums and do what needs to be done and I've always enjoyed it. I've never felt like it's been hard work. I've always enjoyed, you know, getting a sweat on and, you know, loading out. <laughs> um, but there is, I think it's kind of a hangover from the whole rock star thing where, you know, you drink and you party every night. Like, it's definitely not to that extent these days, especially with the kind of tours that we do. But it's very easy because you're in a venue and you get free drinks and there's not really much to do before you play so I think it's just a constant drinking for me anyway was like having at least like three or four beers a night which isn't a lot really in the long no but when it's constant and alcohol is a depressive depressant yes depressant yeah and it it just it just weighs on you you know if you've had four or five beers a night for two weeks straight it's not only on your like mental health it just like destroys your um immune system and I'll just be like so ill at the end of tour because yeah you know the old tour flu I had it at the end of the last tour I did it was nasty I thought it might have been coronavirus but it wasn't one thing I always really struggled with is say you know if, if I've been on a two-week tour I'll get home and it will take a week to feel normal again yeah totally yeah yeah it's the the longer you uh are on tour I think the longer it takes to recuperate in terms of physical and mental health i don't know what the science there is but it's just exhausting isn't it well like you said it's not you've never treated it like work or whatever but my so i've only got compared to you two anyway relatively limited experience of touring but my experience of it is it's fucking way harder than going to work every day i will quite happily sit for 16 hours well doing my (laughs) job anyway which is not representative of of a lot of people's jobs but i'd rather sit and like work for 12 for 12 to 16 hours or whatever fucking touring's hard man you get up and you're on straight away fuck where are we going what have we got to do what time have we got to be there got to drive for six hours and then you get there and then you're like you're kind of always in this state of being on but not being on at the same time you have to be thinking about stuff but you often don't actually have to be doing it so it's so you're never you're never quite resting because you're like oh we've we're in like leads and we've got to go to Brighton tomorrow or something so you're always kind of got these things coming over the hill and on your mind and it just drains you and you're so tired from it in a way that at least if you're at work you're like I'm gonna go home I'm gonna get to bed after this yeah you don't you don't clock off for two weeks like you're you're just on the on the clock essentially yeah it's like hurry up and wait yeah that's that's very true I used to have it occasionally where I'd like wake up with a pang I mean I'm a bad sleeper anyway and I have kind of bad dreams and I always wake up feeling I feel like this is a uh, admission I always wake up feeling kind of bad about myself to be honest but that would just exacerbate massively exacerbate itself massively after tour I'd wake up and I'd be like oh you know this pang of like holy shit I need to find a job today and that's just so much pressure mm. yeah it is a very weird existence for like a week or so where you are kind of just existing but but also you know, you've got a job to do, essentially. Yeah. yeah. 
it's it's weird. It's not it's not really like a set routine, but there is you know you've got to get up, you've got to get to the venue, you've got to I don't know. There's, there's like an air of monotony, but not. I think the thing that um, I've found more tricky about it is that when I when my mindset going into whenever we go away is I'm away, I'm on holiday. Like I'm gonna party. So when the last no shit, Joe, the last UK the, <laughs> the last UK tour that we did, it, we got three days in, played Nottingham on a Monday night, and have been fucked on Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday night, and had gotten up driven every day, and then it smacked me in the face on Tuesday, driving to fucking Southampton or somewhere. It's like, oh, you can't do this. This isn't actually this isn't actually like a big party and I'm not actually on holiday. You have to have some kind of self-restraint to actually get through it and be able to do it. Yeah, massively. Massively. Jay, how how have you felt like getting back to the grips of reality when when you're home? I mean, recently, like so the last tour I did, I did two two tours back to back. I went to the States and then like four or five days after that went on two weeks in Europe and um, I don't know I don't know <laughs> like you say you just kind of um, shut down I think it's hard to explain really I don't know <laughs> that's uh, that's my answer for you going back yeah. to some of the jobs that you've had as a as a teenager or just generally in the last well 15 years I suppose yeah. what, what are some of the, the standout ones I mean you've got an incredible story don't you I do. So going back to the the PPI call center. Um, so yeah, like I said, like they sold the job to me. You know, they were like, you know, you're helping people get money back that they're owed from the bank, and you know, you're getting people money for free and all that. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, it's kind of kind of righteous, kind of helpful. Um, and you know, I always I always got a bit of a dodgy vibe from the the CEO, the boss guy. He's a bit of a geezer obviously and um one day it was like a nice sunny sunny summer's day went into the office and well I didn't actually get in um there was a there was a crowd outside the office and there was a there was a camera crew <laughs> it's like, and, like uh, the simpsons <laughs> yeah there was a camera crew outside the office um <laughs> and and uh and we uh, yeah there was like a camera crew i didn't really see anything else and then i went in sat down and then someone came in that I'd never seen before, but they had like a, you know, some kind of authority air to them. They're like, right, no one log on. Uh, you can leave the office for the day, come back tomorrow. I was like, okay, who's this person? But okay. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it turns out that the big crowd of people were were police or like investigators. Uh, they just weren't in, you know, uniform. And the camera crew was a Channel 4 dispatches documentary team. <laughs> And um, we were told not to uh, not to talk to them on the way out as well. And, uh, it hurt. and so yeah. And then the next day, um, we all came in and sat down. We're like, "What's going on?" Like, and the uh, the boss the boss guy came out and gave us some spiel about you know it's all right now. Don't worry about it. Just don't talk to any uh, camera teams. You see, and uh, he he did this the whole time with two black eyes that he didn't have the day before. So what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he did, just didn't explain that at all either. So obviously, I don't know, got in bad with some people or something, or it might have just been coincidental. Yeah, definitely <laughs> coincidence. I saw in the Argus, the, the local Brighton newspaper, a couple of weeks afterwards, um, call centre gets raided for 
or O-Dialing, which is where you just have like a machine that sends out these recorded messages. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, yeah, call center uh, getting done for doing like 100,000 a day or something ridiculous like that. And uh, it turns out that was us. Yeah. We just, they just didn't find the machine that did it. So we got to stay open. <laughs> so you, so you, so you continued to work there even after that? I did, yeah. Well, like shortly after that, I moved roles. I moved to admin, so I wasn't on the phones, which was fine. And I mean, really, is it that bad? It's not like they did some kind of horrible ethical thing, just called up loads of people. It was just like, machine, didn't yeah. They? I would, I would say you're justified in remaining in your job, Jack. Don't worry. I don't think there's any ethical problems here. Yeah, I wasn't I exploiting agree. anybody. Which, okay. yeah. great. <laughs> Well, Jay's, Jay's got a train to catch, everybody. He's going back to Blighty, Blighty. back to Watford. Back to Blighty, yeah, back to England. <laughs> how do we want to end this? I mean, you, you lot can crack on without me. If you oh, know. yeah, we talked talk about, about so we, Honey Joy's got an album coming out. Oh, yeah. Let's just wrap it up, I guess, by saying Honey Joy's new record, two, it's coming out. Go back to the doll queue. Please don't tell P from the pub because he'll judge me, but I don't mind. I've been paying my taxes on time. I'm not central, not essential. I've never worked for the NHS. Yeah, I've clapped hands and I beat pants. Put away the kitchen utensils now. Don't let your P45 give you chills because we need jobs. We need it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.